Okay, Purim's behind us. Pesach is rapidly approaching. And in between we learn Parsha Shmini. Parsha Shmini, page 588 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Let's, uh, as is our custom, do a brief overview of the Parsha, and then we'll delve into a few of the Psukim uh, we want to look at together. So Parsha Shmini begins with the, uh, the service of the Kohanim. Was on the eighth day, which of course begs the question: the eighth day of what? Drashi answers: Shmini lemiluim. It's Rosh Chodesh Nisan. It was the eighth day of the miluim. The miluim was the inauguration of the temple. Tabernacle was constructed, was built. We spent significant time on its details, the kalim, the utensils therein, and then there was a dry run. Moshe himself acted as the Kohen and uh, there was the inauguration ceremony of the, of the uh, tabernacle, of the Mishkan. So it was on the eighth day, Moshe summons them and they begin. It's opening day in the, in the Mikdash. And Moshe instructs uh, Aaron and his children exactly what to do and the uh, Parsha goes on at length with the uh, Karbonos, what were brought, what happened and so on. Page 592, we have the horrific episode, the tragic episode we're all familiar with of the death of Nadavaviyu. We know it's coming every year, yet when we read it, we can't help but feel tremendous sense of uh, sadness and empathy for Aaron. Aaron's sons, Nadav and Aviyu, take their pan and they place a fire and they bring the Ketoras and they bring what the Torah describes as an Eish Zara Asher Lotziva Osam. They bring a strange fire that they were not commanded. A fire bursts forth and consumes them. They die tragically, prematurely. And uh, Moshe turns to Aaron, tries to comfort his own brother, Bikrovai Ekadesh, Vyapne Kolaam Ekabed, Vaidom Aaron. Aaron, silent. We don't know the nature of this silence. We discussed this at length in the past. You could go on our website or Wayu Torah and listen. We talked about it in the context of the Holocaust, the sound of silence. Vaidom Aaron, the nature of Aaron's silence. Was he silent because he accepted God's decree? Was he silent because he couldn't accept it? Was he silent because he was traumatized and shocked and had nothing to say? What was the nature of Aaron's silence? It's a beautiful insight of the Kloisenberger Rebbe. We don't know exactly the nature. Like I said, you can go on and listen. We spent an entire class on this subject. But what's unclear is whether he accepts his brother's consolation. Moshe tells him, that God says... I am sanctified through those with whom I'm closest. Moshe is trying to tell Aaron, your sons must be something else. They must be so holy because God chose to be chose them to be sanctified through. Is Aaron comforted? Vaidom Aaron. We don't know. He's silent. And as I said, we don't know the nature of that silence. Our rabbis go to great lengths to debate the Mepharshim here on our on our uh, parsha. What did they do wrong? What was their sin? What was their mistake? Did they bring a foreign korban? Did they enter the tabernacle when they were intoxicated? When they were drunk? There's all kinds of conjecture what exactly they did wrong. One of my uh, teachers from high school, Rabbi Usher Bush, Rabbi in... Uh, where is he Rabbi today? In uh, Muncie. So he uh, suggested, if you look at our parsha, it seems disjointed. First half of the parsha has to do with the tabernacle, the death of Nadavaviu, sacrifices. The end of the parsha, what we're going to study this morning, has to do with kashras, the laws of what's kosher, what's not. And it seems totally disjointed. What does one have to do with the other? Is there a unifying theme? And he suggests maybe the unifying theme is 
that just as there are chukim, just as there are Torah commandments, which are a chok, incomprehensible, we don't understand. Ultimately, we submit our will and we concede our understanding and we follow the will of the Almighty. So what's true in the realm of mitzvahs, he suggests, is also true in the realm of life. Then maybe Vayidam Aaron is Aaron saying, I cannot and I will not understand what took place. There is a chok in mitzvahs and there's a chok in life. There are chukim in what we're asked to observe in commandments, and there are chukim in what we're asked to accept in terms of what life throws our way. And maybe that's the unifying theme, maybe that's the connection between Nadav Aviyu and the Kashras at the end of the Pasha, is that just as there are things we're incapable of understanding in the realm of mitzvahs, so too there are episodes, there are experiences in our lives which we're incapable of understanding as well. One thing we know, it's a horrific and horrible and terrible tragedy that Aaron goes through. Why did some suggest that the prohibition, that Nadav and Avi were punished because they entered the tabernacle intoxicated? Very simple, turn the page. Because the narrative continues, the parsha continues, by the Hashem al-Aaron le'mor, you're not allowed to be intoxicated. You can't drink when you enter the temple. And if you do, it's a capital crime. It's punishable by death. V'lo samusu. So the Kohanim are instructed they're not allowed to enter the tabernacle in a state of inebriation. Why not? Why not? Why can't they drink? Oh, so then it's Siv. Rav Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, excuse me, in his commentary on Chumash Amik Davar, we shared this in the class we recently gave about uh, the Jewish view of marijuana, the Nitziv says, the Kohen walking into the tabernacle every day and later the Beis HaMikdash, it is a burdensome job. It's not easy. It's not easy to do the sacrifices. You're lifting heavy animals, you're slaughtering, there's blood splurting, you're sprinkling, you're eating, you're burning, you're... There's a lot of... Ju- you know, you're hanging the meat, you're flying... There's a lot of... Uh, it's a physically grueling labor. The Kohanim are also the leaders and teachers of the Jewish people. You are having to deal with the Jewish people. The Jewish people are a wonderful people, but I can tell you they're not always the easiest people. They're demanding, and they're often critical, and they're complaining, and they're challenging, and they're ungrateful. They can be all these... Never here, I'm just saying I've heard elsewhere. They can be all these things. <laughs> Says the Nitziv, the Kohen may be tempted in the morning when he wakes up on his way into work to say, you know what, in order to get through this day, I need a drink. Says the Nitziv, the Kohen may say in the middle of the day, you know, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, this is hard work, I've just had to deal with a few Yisraelim or Nudniking, and uh, you know what, I need a little Chaim, I need a drink, I need a little something. Says the Nitziv, that's why the Torah says, you cannot use alcohol as an escape. You cannot use alcohol as a coping mechanism. You cannot avoid the challenges of life by drinking. You need to confront them, and you need to engage them, and you need to learn to rise above them to deal with them. It's a beautiful insight by the Nitziv. In a sense, it has nothing to do with the Beis HaMikdash itself. It has to do with our attitude towards alcohol. And we try to extrapolate with an attitude towards marijuana in the class that we recently gave. Is that substances are not used, that even ones that God says are permissible. We know that alcohol plays a very prominent role in Judaism. We make Kiddush, we make Havdalah, at a bris, at a wedding, every ceremony. We always have a Bori Priya Gafen. 
It has a designated bracha. Alcohol has a prominent role. But ritualistically, it's supposed to elevate the experience, not supposed to be an escape from the experience. And when one engages alcohol, or any substance for that matter, in an effort to avoid, in an effort to escape, then it's something which is bad. That's the Nitziv's insight here. Rabbi Soloveitchik had a different insight. Rabbi Soloveitchik said, and it's a little anticlimactic as we are now at the end or after Purim, but I'll tell you for next Purim. It's one of my favorite insights of the Rav. I may have shared this recently with you. I don't even remember. The Rav says that why on Purim Dafka do we drink? You're supposed to drink until you can't tell the difference. Cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. So why do you drink on Purim? And we're not going to get into it. We've discussed this also in the past at length. The different opinions. The Ramah, you just drink enough that you take a little shluf. Do you drink a lot that you're intoxicated? What's the... And so on. But Rabbi Soloveitchik said, why on Purim would you drink? Judaism abhors, abhors forfeiting our, our intellectual thinking. We, we totally reject the idea of being drunk all year round. It's not a Jewish value, a Jewish way. So why would we say drink on Purim to the point of intoxication? So who's the one who teaches that's the halacha, says the Rav? The Gemara, Amar Rava. Rava is the one who says, It is Rava who teaches you have to drink on Purim to the point of intoxication. The Gemara also says, why don't you say Halal on Purim? And the Gemara gives three answers. Either because the Megillah is, we talked about this last week, the Megillah is Halal. Or a second answer is because the miracle happened outside the land of Israel. Or thirdly because, thirdly because, Akate Avde Achashverosh Anon. We remain servants. We remain enslaved to Achashverosh. We remain in exile. Yes, we overcame the threat of Shushan, but here we are still sitting in exile. We lack a base of Mikdash. We lack, we lack the Hashras Hashrina in the ultimate form in Yerushalayim. Said the Rav, it's not a coincidence, it's the same Rava who observes that we are still in exile, is the same Rava who says the only way to feel happiness while you're in exile is to drink. In the Torah, whenever it says to feel happiness, it says, Whenever it says Simcha in the Torah, it always is in conjunction with Lifnei Hashem. Real joy, real happiness is when you're before the Almighty. When you feel you're in the presence of God and the whole world is not random and chance, it's not the, the influence of a Malik, which is Mikra, but when you understand the world is made up of meaning and order and purpose, that there is God, there is providence to the world, then you feel Simcha. What a relief. How liberating. What happens is not random. All that happens to me is for the best. There's a master plan. That's a source of incredible joy. When you're living Hashem, when you know with certainty that God exists and you have no doubt whatsoever, you're immediately filled with a sense of simcha. There's a joy. It's liberating to know there's meaning and order to the universe. But when there's room for doubt, when you're in exile, when you can't see God palpably, when doubt creeps in, the only way to feel simcha is a counterfeit, inauthentic experience, and that's alcohol. That's alcohol. So davka and Purim, where we're still akate avde achashvero shanan, davka and Purim said the Rav, where there is a awareness that we remain in exile. Asher haglam Yerushalayim. Right? The Megillah tells more. how did they end up in Shushan? Because of the exile. So the awareness that we're still in exile, that's why we can only engage in a counterfeit 
form of Simcha, while we yet long for the most authentic form. So the Rav proved this, he said from right here, our Parsha, Yayin v'sheicha al-teisht, when you come into the Oa Moed, where you palpably feel God, where you know with certainty God exists, where you can feel the most authentic, genuine simcha of being before the Almighty, how could you engage in a counterfeit, in a fake, in an authentic source or vehicle of simcha when you have the capacity, when you're in the presence of the Almighty for the most genuine form? That's what's going on. That was the Rav's insight here. So that's why on we have the capacity, we, we're supposed to feel Simcha. Three times a year, Yontif, Shalash Ragalam, you go to the base of Mikdash, you go to Yerushalayim, you felt in the presence of the Almighty, and not coincidentally, what mitzvah was there to have on Yontif? Simcha. Today we don't have the base of Mikdash. How do you fulfill Simcha on Yontif? Because we don't have the base of Mikdash. So we again, we achieve simcha through a different route. Okay. The uh, Parsha continues with the laws of Kashras. Page 596. We have at length the signs, the symbols, the laws, the details of Kashras. First it tells us the laws of land animals. They have to have split hooves and chew their cud in order for them to be kosher. It gives us these signs. We know that all, the Torah makes us a promise. Every animal that has split hooves also chews its cud with the exception of a few. With the exception of a few. Then it tells us the fish. In order to be kosher fish, it has to have fins and scales. And the Torah goes out of its way and makes a bold promise. Any fish that has fins also has scales. So really, even though there's two signs, though there are exceptions, the Torah lists them, um, for the most part, if you identify one sign, you know that the other is there. The um, Rabbi Ari Khan, who's actually coming this Shabbos as our scholar in residence, is one of the authors of the Discovery Seminar of Asia Torah. It's outreach program. It used to be two and a half days. Now it's one day. But one of the arguments Asia Torah makes about the authenticity regards the authorship of the, of the Torah, of the Bible. It says, how can anyone but an omnipotent being make such a promise? If a group of human beings got together in the wilderness and said, let's create a religion, we'll write a book, and we'll convince the world that this is given by God, and they sat down to write the book. So imagine, you're thousands of years ago. You're in the desert, wherever you are. You form a committee of people, men and women. And you say, what should we put in our book if we're going to convince people this book is from God? Someone raises his hand and says, I know. Let's institute some laws of kashras, a diet. Okay, it's an interesting idea, diet. We'll, we're going to get into this momentarily. What's the value of a diet? Why would God ask us to, to legislate our diet? But let's assume with committee votes, diet, excellent idea. Good. Someone else raises their hand and says, why don't we make the rules of the diet that any animal split hooves, chooses its cud, fish fins and scales, excellent. Third person raises their hands and says, let's say that every animal that has split hooves to also chooses its cud with the exception of these few. People on the committee would look and say, are you crazy? What if we're wrong? If we make that promise in the book, and then it turns out that in a thousand years, they inhabit another part of the globe, and they discover an animal, another exception to the rule, what are they going to do with our book? They're going to throw it out. What are they going to do with our religion? They're going to walk away. We're going to be exposed. So why would we make a promise for something unless we are absolutely certain and positive that it's true? That's one of the arguments Eishat Torah makes. 
Rabbi Ari Khan, you could ask him about it at the Shabbos, that the Torah in a number of cases makes promises, and Kashrus actually makes promise after the Shemitah year, the sabbatical year, that if you leave your land, then uh, Hashem will protect you, you'll grow even more, you'll grow enough for three years in the eighth year. There's all kinds of problems when you go up Alila Regal, nobody will attack. All kinds of promises are made. Only an omnipotent being who can make good on those promises would make the promises to begin with. If it was a committee of men, of people, they would never make a promise they couldn't guarantee. And remarkably, extraordinarily, though today we have thousands of species and we have entire areas of study dedicated to these issues, we have not found more exceptions than what the Torah promises us. That which the omnipotent being promised is actually confirmed, is actually true. There's some debate exactly which these animals are. It's not entirely clear which they are, but that's the law. So when it comes to land animals, they have to have split hooves and chew their cud. When it comes to fish, they have to have uh, fins and scales. What about birds? What's the halacha with birds? What are the signs in order to be a kosher bird? There is no sign. Maybe it can't be birds of prey. The Torah tells us there has to be a mesora. There has to be a tradition that those animals. So it gives us a list of the birds that can't be eaten. The nesha, the peres, the ozniyah, da'ah, ayah, lamina. It gives us a list. The problem is, how do we know what's on that list? So the Rishonim already tried. The Gemara says, the Mishnah actually says that has a crop, it goes through all these uh, gizzard, it goes through all these uh, signs, maybe for the bird. In the end of the day, we say, since we have birds of prey, uh, since we don't know how to identify the signs with the bird, Shachanar says, we rely on the Mesorah. Only if there's a Mesorah, if there's a tradition. That's why there's a debate. Turkey. turkey. There are those who don't eat turkey. Turkey is a new world bird, discovered and came to America. So... Does the turkey, if it's a new bird, is there a Masora? Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky did not eat turkey. Rafershel Shechter, does not eat turkey. There were many great rabbis who did not eat turkey because they felt it did not have a Masora. Mr. Shechter eats turkey. But there are, uh, <laughs> there are people who are strict not to eat, uh, not to eat turkey. Uh, so how do we rely on turkey? If it's a new world bird, how do you eat it? How do we rely on it? So there's a big discussion, there's Chuvas, the Chavaz Yar, the Chav Sofer, many others. If, if, if a bird exhibits the same qualities as another bird that is part of the Mesora, then we can include it within the Mesora. So Chav Sofer talks about the eggs being similar, if the eggs of the birds are similar. Others talk about, can you cross-breed the birds? A turkey and a chicken, I don't know. But others talk about there are different ways of telling whether it can be considered a cousin, a relative of the same species, and therefore under the same umbrella of part of that Mesora, most of us rely on that. Those who eat turkey, there are those who are strict, as I say, who don't eat turkey. But you see that birds are different than animals. Animals and fish have signs. Birds are, birds are exclusively Mesora. Yes? That a turkey is a big chicken, right? <laughs> that it's an extension of the chicken family. Yeah. Then the Torah gets into insects. We, again, there's a Mesorah, Sephardim, some in Israel still eat grasshoppers, certain insects which are kosher, but we don't eat any insects. The creepy crawly things, contamination, kosher animals, and the Parsha ends. Okay, that's an overview of the, of the Parsha. What I want to study together today is the very end of the Parsha which though the half of the Parsha deals with the question of 
of the laws of Kashrus, it's only after the laws are given at the very end of the Parsha that the Torah gives us a little insight into why. Why does God care about our diet? Why does He care about what we put in our mouth? I hear this all. Is it really important? Does God really care what I eat? Isn't it important for me to be a good person? What matters? So I eat fish out. So I eat the salad out. So I'm not so careful with the symbols, the hachshirim. So I don't check my vegetables for insects. Does God really care? Does it really matter? Being a good person is what matters. These minutia, these details, so mundane. Does God really care? So the Torah says explicitly at the end of Parsha Shemini, our Parsha, yeah, God really cares. And why does God really care? For Him? Is this for God? Does God somehow benefit by what we put in our mouths? Does God get a cut of the kosher industry? So if you look on Pasuk Mem Dalad, Perakidalf, chapter 11, Pasuk Mem Dalad, verse 44, page 606 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, says the Torah, the end of Parsha Shmini, Ki ani Hashem Elokechem, ve'es kadishtem ve'isan kedoshem, ki kadosh ani, ve'lo sitam uas nafsho sechem, bechol hasheretz haromes al ha'aretz. I am Hashem your God. You are to sanctify yourselves, and you are to be holy. And why is it important for you to be holy? Because I am holy. And you don't contaminate yourself through any of the creepy crawly things that crawl on the ground. And why is it important for you to emulate or imitate me? Why do I care? And why am I in a position to demand what you eat? Because I took you out of Egypt. And why did I take you out of Egypt? Why did I liberate and emancipate and form you as a nation and a people? To be holy. And why do I care if you're holy? Kikadosh ani, because I am holy. Zos Torah sabehem of haof, v'chol nefesh achaya, haromeses b'mayim, v'chol nefesh achareses al ha'aretz. And this, therefore, is the law of the land, the law of the animal, the bird, every living creature in the water, and for every creature on the ground. Lahavdil ben atome ben ator ben achaya neachelos ben achaya asher lo tzeachel. And these are the laws in order to distinguish between the contaminated and the pure, between the creature that can be eaten and the one that cannot be eaten. So here, in these few psukim at the very end of the parsha, God says, "Why do I care about your diet? Because your diet is the means through which you can attain holiness. And why do I care that you're holy?" Because I'm holy. And who am I to tell you what to eat? I'm the one who took you out of Egypt. And what's important about your diet is distinction. Distinguishing. Eating this, but not eating that. So even before we delve into, which we will right now, the Mepharshim, who will expand further, but the Torah tells us, holiness. Diet equals holiness. Kedusha. Look at Rashi. Begin with Rashi. Kani Hashem alokeichem. Kishem Shani Kadosh Shani Hashem Alokechem Kach Vis Kadishtem Kitchuas Atzmechem Lamata. Just like I am holy because I am God, God by definition is holy, so too I want you to sanctify yourselves, Lamata, in this world. I placed you in a world, and the world is the means through which, an environment through which you can achieve holiness. The Yisem Kadoshim, Lafanai. If you show the capacity to sanctify yourselves below, meaning on earth, in the physical world, then I will sanctify you above. In other words, you will reap the reward and the benefit in the world to come. 
And why should you do all this? Says Rashi Memhei. Because this is why I took you out, says God. I didn't take you out to make you like any other people. I didn't take you out of Egypt to become some secular political entity. I took you out with a sacred mission. I took you out to be a covenantal community. I took you out with an incredibly spiritual task to transform yourselves, to be a model, a symbol, to be a microcosm of what I wanted this world to be. That's why. Everywhere else it says God took us out. Here it says Hamala. He elevated. Had I only taken the Jewish people out of Egypt, and the only thing different between the Jewish people and the rest of the world was that they sanctified themselves in their diet, Dayenu. God also sings Dayenu. We say Dayenu, right? If you just took us out and you didn't do this, if you just did this and you didn't do the other thing, Dai Dayenu. Well, God also has a song, Dayenu. If I only took them out and all they did was observe the laws of Kashras, Dayenu. And that's why here, throughout the rest of the Torah, when it says God took us out of Egypt, it says, Hotseisi, He extracted us. Here it says, Hama'aleschem, He lifted us out. What does it mean He lifted us out? We become lifted, we are elevated. We are elevated when we control our diet. And if God lifted us out by giving us the laws of controlling our diet, Dayam, Dayenu, that would have been, that would have been enough, says Rashi. Says Rashi. What is Kedusha? So God says, I'm holy. I want you to be holy. Diet is how you become holy. And who am I to tell you to be holy? Because I took you out of Egypt. And if all, all you did to become holy, taking you out of Egypt, was control your diet, that would have elevated you. Dayenu. How does diet equal holy? What is holy? How is God holy? How is God holy? How does diet make us like God and holy? What is holiness? What is holiness? The Sforno also comments here. Look at the Sforno. The Yisam Kedoshim Kikadosh Ani says the Sforno. Kedeshetiyu Kedoshim v'nitzchiyim ba'akirchem ez bora'achem v'alachtem bedrachav. So that you will be holy and eternal when you recognize your Creator and you walk in His way. Says God, I want this, I crave this, because I want you to be like me. For I am holy. Says the Sephorno, How do you become holy? When you safeguard yourself from that which is prohibited. If I had to translate the word holy, holy is like a Christian term. I don't know what holy means. Holy is a Christian term. What's holy? What's the Jewish translation of the word kadosh, kedusha? Separate. Distinct. Distinguished. Or I would say most accurately, discipline. Discipline. Holiness, sanctity is achieved through discipline. God is the ultimate expression of discipline. 
In fact, for God, it's not even discipline. What discipline means is, I'm tempted to do X, but because I am disciplined, I don't. Disciplined means I manage every moment of my day. I control my time. Even though I am tempted to be lazy and procrastinate and waste time, but I'm disciplined. So I use every moment. Discipline means I really, oh, that chocolate cake looks delicious. Discipline means I have Shalach Mahas piles all over my house. And okay, it's after Purim, okay, a little bit. I just fasted on Tanis Esther, it's okay. Discipline says no. I'm not interested, I'm not going to eat it, I don't want it. Discipline says, I have a juicy piece of Lashonara. I can't wait to share it over coffee with my friends. It'll make me the center of attention, it'll get a good laugh, I'll be the person in the know. Discipline says, it's not worth it, I'm not going to say it. Discipline means, I am combating a temptation. In other words, there is a, a default, there's a momentum, there's a, um, not friction, what's the, what's the term? Purim, still Purim. Yeah, I'm still feeling the impact of Purim. I forgot the term. But there's a, there's a status quo that pulls me. I'm disciplined to transcend, to rise above it, and to control it. And where do I get that capacity from? Where does that stem from? The ability within myself to say, I'm not looking at that image. I'm not eating that food. I'm not sharing that Lashon Hara. I'm not sleeping in. I'm not... Where do I find that capacity? Where do I draw that strength? It's the Tzalem Elohim in me. It's the Tzalem Elohim in me. Where does the temptation come from? Where's the Yetzirah from? The Nefesh Behemi. It's from the animal impulse in me. Human beings, we've talked about this before, people of the book, when we studied the Tanya together, we talked about this last Shabbat Shuvah, when we talked about that we are a soul, we don't have a soul. We are made up of two components. Our soul is purely an extension of God. The soul is purely disciplined. The soul has no temptation. But when you plant the soul, when you house the soul in a body, and the body becomes the clothing, the garment of the soul, the body now is a vehicle of temptation. The body wants to sleep. The body wants to speak Lashnara. The body wants to eat. The body wants to look. The body wants to hear. The, bo- the body desires. And where, what is the body? The body is the material, physical, animal impulse, animal instinct. This is what we describe. You eat like a pig. Your room looks like a pigsty. You're acting like an animal. Right? There are names of movies and there are names of uh, songs that play off of this. The animal and pig. and That's the physical, that's the description of the temptation in man. So there's this battle, there's this war that takes place constantly between the animal impulse and temptation and the godly spirit. What is the godly spirit? The capacity to be disciplined, to be in control, to be above. All of Torah is designed to empower the godly spirit to triumph over the animal impulse. That's Torah. It's a life of discipline. From which shoe you tie first in the morning, how you get dressed, how you go to the bathroom, how you speak, what you look at, how you regulate your time, and how you regulate your diet. God says, Ki kadosh ani. I'm disciplined. For God, there's no temptation. God doesn't say, ah, I'm tempted to destroy the world again, but I don't. I'm tempted to, uh, but I don't. For God, there's no temptation. It's pure discipline. And the Tzel Melokim in us, we as an extension of God, are pure discipline. But for the time we are here on earth, 
we also combat the animal impulse. And so how do we express? That's what the sacrifice is. Rav says, Korbonos are all about coming into the temple, bringing an animal, saying to God, I am slaughtering this animal, is symbolic of slaughtering the animal instinct in me. Says Rav that's what all of Korbonos are about. I'm killing the animal in me. I'm killing the animal in me. So Kashras is that even while I engage this physical world which requires sustenance and nourishment and food, I do it in a manner which expresses discipline because that's how I become holy. That's how I become holy. Where does the Rambam place his laws of Kashras? What's the name of the book? The Rambam's Mishnah Torah, what he calls his Mishnah Torah, but we call the Yara Chazaka. Mishnah Torah, the Rambam called it the Mishnah Torah because he says in his introduction, it encapsulates the whole Torah. You don't need Mishnah, you don't need Gemara, you, don't need, you need a Chumash and my Mishnah Torah and you have it all. Mishnah, it's a repetition, it's a summary of Torah. We thought that that might not be the best name. We call it the Yad HaChazaka, the Yad Stretched Arm. What is Yad? 14. There's 14 books in the Rambam's Mishnah Torah. 14 books in the Rambam's Yad HaChazaka. Ma'da'av, Azmanim, and so on. Which book does the Rambam put the, the laws of diet? In the book called Kedusha. It's unbelievable. You know what laws are in the book called Kedusha? What laws would you put? You have 14 volumes and one of them is called Holiness. Holy, holy, holy. Holiness. What would you put in your laws of holiness? Shabbos, maybe. Maybe Yom Kippur. I don't know. You know what he puts in the laws of holiness? Eating and sex. Machalos asuros and and uh, and 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 uh, the halachas of, of uh, relations, the halachas of food, and so on. What the Rambam puts in the book called Kedusha are the mechanisms, the way that we engage the physical world and show discipline and make it distinguished. Other, unlike other religions in which one must withdraw from the physical world to achieve holiness, in Judaism you achieve holiness from within the physical world. But what we do, there's two extremes. There are those who believe you become holy by withdrawing asceticism, right? So you fast, you take a vow of abstinence, you take a vow of silence. And then there's the opposite, our culture, hedonism. You delve right into the physical world, which is like um, you know, sexual freedom and say whatever's on your mind and dress however you want and do whatever you want. A life of decadence and hedonism. Judaism is right in the middle. And Judaism says, you know where holiness is? It's by engaging the physical world, but by elevating it, by making it distinguished, by making it distinct. We eat food. We enjoy food. There's a mitzvah to enjoy good food. But you make a bracha. It has to be kosher. You have to observe milchiks and fleshiks and so on. We enjoy the physical world. There's a mitzvah to experience physically, to experience pleasure and intimacy. A mitzvah to provide pleasure and intimacy. It's not something just for procreation. There's a pleasure component which is an obligation upon us. But we do it with a distinct person, in a distinct time, in a modest manner, and so on and so forth. That's holiness. So God says, why am I giving you these laws of kashras? Ki ani. Because I am holy, I am disciplined and distinguished, and I want you to be disciplined and distinguished. And how do you exhibit that distinction? By showing discipline. Continues the Sforno. And that's why I took you out of Egypt. I'm 
I didn't take you out to be a secular, secular political entity. I didn't take you out to be another member of the EU. I took you out to be a holy people. And you owe it to me. La Soni. You have to satisfy what I want because I took you out. Ki omnam kamanti my kavana was says God I took you out with the intent of having no intermediary between you and me each of you can have a direct relationship with me and do you know how to have a direct relationship with me says God the holier you are the closer you are to me why is that? Because the holier you are, the more you're imitating me. Now it makes a lot of sense, right? If God puts in us the Tzelem Elohim, and then we also have this animal impulse, but we live a life where the Tzelem Elohim dominates the animal impulse, then the Tzelem Elohim is going to feel more connected to Elohim. The godly component in us is going to make us feel more connected. We each have a little of our mother and father in us. But if we're exactly like our mother or our father, we feel very connected to them. We look like them, we have the same habits, we have the same speaking, we have the same uh, everything about them. We think the same, same humor, sense of humor. So if we have components of God, and we have components of animal, but we express the component of God, then we feel more connected to Him, we have more in common with Him. And because we have more in common with Him, we feel more connected to Him. So God says, you can relate directly to me. Beliam tzai. Without an intermediary. And how do you do it? By being holy. Be like me. Be like me, and you'll be closer to me. And that's what Kashrus is all about, says the Svarno. So the Medrash Tanchuma. The Medrash Tanchuma asks, it's incredible, says the Medrash, Ma ichpas la karish baruchu she yochli Yisrael beloshkita, she Yisrael nocher va'ocha v'shochit menatzavaru menayarech. What does it matter to God whether the animal slaughtered at the windpipe or the nape of the neck? Why does God care whether we eat kosher food or non-kosher food? Does God really care? So let's listen to what the Medjish Tanchuma answers. Teda, no! God doesn't really care about shechita. Yes, he cares about shechita. It prevents pain to the animal. The animal doesn't feel pain. It's a painless way of, of killing the animal. But does God really care about shechita? No. Does God really care about this animal, that animal? To a degree, it's arbitrary. What God really cares about is that there's a diet. So the diet may be arbitrary, but we're observing a diet. And by observing a diet, we're going to be a more disciplined people. And by being a more disciplined people, we're going to be more, have more in common with God and thereby be much more connected to and much more closer with God. Okay? That's Rashi and that is the Sforno. The, um, the Rashbam gives a different reason for Kashrith. To see this Rashbam, you've got to go back earlier in the Parsha. Go all the way back to Perak Aleph. Pasuk Gimel. Perak Yudalaf, Pasuk Gimel. The Rashbam gives a different answer. Says the Rashbam, Shasa, Shasa. Torah says that in order for an animal to be kosher, it has to have split hooves and chew its cud. Says the Rashbam, Ulafib shuto shamikra, uchuvas aminim, 
כל הבהמות והחיות והעופות והדוגים ומיני הרבה ושרוצים שעושה הקדוש ברוך הוא לישראל מאוסים הם ומלקלקלם ומחמם ממס הגוף ולפיכך נקראו תמיהם. הרשפם is bothered. If it's an arbitrary rule, if it's an arbitrary diet, because what matters most is that we're dieting and being disciplined, why does the Torah refer to those non-kosher animals as contaminated, impure, tmeim, and kosher animals as tahorim, as tahor, as pure? It's arbitrary. It's nothing intrinsic or inherent within the animal. It's just there to promote a diet, to promote discipline. So says the Rashbam, not true. Says the Rashbam, all the flesh and the fish and the fowl and the vermin that are forbidden are harmful to the body. That God's diet actually corresponds with health. That's what the Rashbam says. The diet God gave us corresponds with healthy living. That's the Rashbam's contention. Rashi's grandson, Shmuel ben Meir. The Yabar Benel doesn't like it. You don't have this in your Mikros Kedolos, but the Yabar Benel doesn't like it, and he doesn't like it for very good reason. What's his reason? Yabar Benel was actually a physician as well, but what's his reason? Because it's not true. If you look at the Torah's diet, it does not only permit healthy, and the animals that are forbidden are unhealthy. Says the Yabar Benel, there are plenty of kosher observant people walking around with high blood pressure, high, cholest- high cholesterol, diabetes, clinically obese. If the Rashbam's formula were true, everyone who keeps kosher should be the model of health, and the people who keep non-kosher should be on the brink of death, ticking time bombs. But that said, notes the Abar Benel already in his time that it's not true. Many people who don't keep kosher are specimens of good health, and many who observe kosher, you look around the Shmorger Kiddush on a given Shabbos, you'll see that it's not exactly the who's who of healthy living. So says the Abar Benel, it can't be true. It can't be true. So what is kashras about? What is kashras about? The Rambam in his Moranavuchim says, non-kosher are dirty animals. They represent dirty or filthy animals. Not necessarily harmful, as the Rashbam says, to the health, but the Ramam says they're dirty or they're filthy. But again, we know that that's not true either, that there's, uh, there's much more than that. There's much more than that. So there are other answers which are given. The Ramban, the Ramban says, I'll show you where it is. It's the Ramban, Perak Yud Aleph, Pasuk Yud Gimel. Perak Yud Aleph, Pasuk Yud Gimel. Says the Ramban, in etama iser, you see. Uh, sorry, in yana drisa, tama iser. Second, uh, second to last paragraph. You got it. Tama iser baofos. Why are some birds? Why are some fowl kosher and others are not? Mibnei achzari is toldosam. The Ramban says the following. Ramban argues that you are what you eat. You are what you eat. So when we ingest, we ingest not only the cholesterol, we ingest not only the uh, blood pressure within the red meat, but you also ingest the qualities and characteristics of that which you eat. We ingest the personality of that which we eat. So says the Ramban, 
Kashras, that which the Torah delineates as non-kosher, is because they are birds of prey. Similarly, he says, the animals. If it has split hooves and chews its cud, it ha- does not, it's not cruel. It doesn't eat other animals. It eats vegetation. If it lacks those things, it eats other animals. Animals that murder and kill and live off of eating other animals, we're not interested in ingesting that cruelty. Right? That's what he writes. Achzarios. The Achzarios told us some. V'nei nimtzu betold us some shinoi mashiizkur chachamim chelav tahorim omed v'chelav tameim kulam enen rafka v'lo yizgaven liolam hem hem mishunim. So the Ramban says the most important sign of unfitness as food is praying. Every bird of prey is invariably unfit. Torah removed it from us as food because its blood becomes heated up due to its cruelty and it's dark and thick which gives rise to that bitter which is intends to make the heart cruel. Thus the reason for certain birds being forbidden as food is on account of their cruel nature. It's possible that's the reason that certain animals, no animal that chews its cud and has parted hoof, is a beast of prey while the rest all devour others. So says the Ramban, you are what you eat there's a notion of it being that there's an impact of the food that we eat whether we're aware of it or not. That's why it matters to protect our kids from eating non-kosher. That's why it matters to not eat food which is non-kosher even if we don't know, we can't claim ignorance, we have to do everything we can. Because for the Ramban, we are what we eat. We ingest the very character traits, we invest, ingest the very qualities of what we eat. So, so far we've seen the Rashi and the Svarno say and the Medrash Tanchuma, the diet is arbitrary. What matters is leading a disciplined life. That's how you become disciplined. We saw the Rambam says, kashrus has to do with dirtiness. The animals that are not kosher are dirty. We saw the, the uh, Rashbam says it has to do with health. Kosher foods are healthy. Non-kosher are unhealthy. The Abarbanel didn't like that because he says empirically it's not true. Says the Ramban, it has to do with you are what you eat. It has to do with, it has to do with cruelty. The um, Sefer HaChinuch also weighs in. And the Sefer HaChinuch says this. I'll read it to you in the English. Sefer HaChinuch says that the root of this precept lies the reason that the body is an instrument of the spirit. With it, it carries out its activity. Without it, it never completes its work. Thus we find that the body at its command is like a pair of tongues in the hand of a blacksmith. With it he can produce a tool fit for its purpose. In truth, if the tongues are strong and properly shaped to grasp tools in them, the craftsman can make them well. If they are not good, the tools will never come out properly. In the same way, if there is any loss or damage in the body, some function of the intelligence will be nullified corresponding to that defect. For this reason, our whole and perfect Torah removed us from anything that causes such a defect. The faithful, trustworthy physician who adjured us about them, is wiser than both you and them. How foolish and hasty would anyone be who thought that nothing is harmful or useful except as he understands it. Sefer HaChinuch, like the Rashbam says, there's a divine understanding of what's healthy and unhealthy. Keep kosher and be healthy. But I think that you can combine these reasons. And I think that there's the spirit of the law. If you are disciplined, even if the diet is arbitrary, but it promotes and cultivates within us a sense of discipline, then we should be able to take that sense of discipline and apply it to what we eat. In other words, if you gorge on dessert, in my opinion, you're not keeping kosher. The Torah's view of kosher is not just about the ingredients, it's about the manner in which you eat. I wrote about this earlier this year, I got in big trouble about it. 
when I talked about our Shabbos meals and how much we're serving and the consumption and the, what it costs and the competition and the many courses and all of that. But the bottom line is, keeping kosher is not just about the ingredients that go into food. You can have all the ingredients be kosher, but you're eating pure garbage which is unhealthy, which is also what kashras is about. Kashras is about discipline. When you are full and you feel like if I eat anything more, I'm going to throw up, and then you eat the rest of your meal, that's a form of, sorry for the graphic nature, but that's a form of, not, of keeping non-kosher. So perhaps you can combine these reasons. Maybe the kosher itself, you can't say that those are only the healthy foods. But what you can say is that the result of a mandate of a diet should be our capacity to eat a healthy diet. And when we eat an unhealthy diet, even when it's all kosher, essentially we're not really keeping the spirit of the laws of kashras. We're not really keeping the spirit of the laws of kashras. There's a last reason which I want to share with you, which is given by Rav Hirsch. Rav Hirsch says that kashras accomplishes something else also. When you talked about being distinguished and distinct and separate and apart and holy, kashras achieves something else. It protects the Jew from assimilation. It means the Jew always needs to remember that they are a Jew. And they can't just eat where everyone else eats. And they can't socialize where everyone else socializes. And they can't participate where everyone else participates. And whether it's the accommodations you have to make when you go out for a business meal, or whether it's the accommodations you have to make when you go on an airplane or a vacation, or whether it's the accommodations you have to make in every aspect of life, it reminds you that you are separate and apart and distinct and distinguished and have to live a life which is a sacred mission. So kashras, again, even if the rules are arbitrary, it serves to elevate us as a community, to create a community of people who are separate and apart, who are protected from assimilation. There was a great article that was written many years ago when the Oreo cookie went under the OU. You may remember that great moment of Jewish pride. (laughs) When the Oreo cookie went under the OU... Now the Tootsie Roll went under the OU. And all of these iconic foods went under the OU. They became kosher. For many, they were a cause for celebration. But there was, interestingly, a conservative rabbi who wrote an article in the Jewish Week many years ago when Oreo went under the, under the uh, OU. And he wrote that he's very troubled by it. Why? He writes the following. With the possible exception of Santa Claus and the Big Mac... The Oreo has long been the most infamous prohibition for observant Jewish children. We long to taste this delicacy, whose ingredients included forbidden lard, but had to make do with the inferior sawdust-textured substitutes. Some kids dreamed of catching a Mickey Mantle foul pop. I fantasized about unscrewing an Oreo and licking the middle. In truth, Oreo... uh, Sorry, sorry... Oreos aren't the only prohibited food to become kosher. Chips Ahoy, Honey Made Grams, many other products uh, have also become kosher... Many people naively assume when they see a kosher symbol, a pious old religious guy, sorry, sorry. Oh, here. Now that kosher is in and Oreos will be okay, I'm not sure I want them to be. I know that in some perverse manner, my Oreo envy kept me safely at the outer edges of middle America, shielding me from total absorption into the vanilla masses. Oreos were the equivalent of white bread. More than anything else, the Jewish contribution to American culture has been the communication of the experience of marginality, of having survived otherness, Oreo denial was for me a direct extension of Egyptian slavery. It made me uncomfortable enough to feel different and different enough to feel proud. Now with Oreos becoming acceptable, I can still rely on the other forbidden food, the hostess Twinkie.
Did the Twinkie become kosher? Is it kosher now also? I don't think so. Not yet. That's why they went out. Yeah. Anyway, but it's an interesting. It's a, it's a it's a very interesting article. But it's the idea that it, you know to have every iconic non-kosher food become kosher. It's good for the Jew to remember that while everybody else loves the Oreo, we can't. We're not allowed. We're different. There's something healthy. There's something valuable. There's something meaningful in that. So that's, uh, these are some of the different perspectives at the end of our Parsha, what Kashrus is about. Interestingly, what the Torah promises us at the end of the Parsha, we'll close with this is, that if you make your effort, God will match it and help us. That's what it says, the Orachayim. Ki ani Hashem alokeichem. Says the Orachayim, Perish imushuna uma Yisraelis liktoshu taharash labacha Hashem likara loka el Yisrael. God didn't ask this of the other nations. He asked this of us. And He will help us. If you make an effort, if you show a desire to be holy, to be sacred, to be distinguished, to be distinct, to be disciplined, God says, I will meet you halfway. I will protect you from unintended non-kosher food entering your system. If you show discipline and a desire to keep kosher, God will protect you from eating non-kosher by accident. He will elevate us. And we end with the Kliyakar. Says the Kliyakar. Pasuk Memhei. Kasha. Why does God talk about taking us out of Egypt with kosher? He could have turned to any mitzvah and said, Why do you have to do this mitzvah? I'm the one who took you out of Egypt. What I say goes. Could have said it about Shatnas, about Tefillin. Did say it about Tefillin. Could have said it about Chveis, uh, I don't know. Lulav. Why did he say it about Kashrus? Says the Kliyakar. A number of other distinctions in the text. Al Kain Omer Ani says the Kliyakar, second paragraph. Therefore, I suggest the following. Why are the creepy crawly insects the worst? They're called contaminated and pure, they're the worst. So he says, the closer you are to the earth, the more earthly you are, the more material and physical you are. The higher you are elevated, the more spiritual you are. And this is why man walk on two legs instead of four. Our feet are firmly planted on the ground, like an animal, we're connected to the earth. We're material beings. But we stand upright because we also are connected to the heavens. We yearn and we stretch and we strive upward while the animal has all four on the ground because it's entirely connected all to the ground, to the earth. Right, the creepy crawly is the most earthly. It is the closest to the ground and therefore bears that impact. And he continues... That's why fish don't require shechita, because they're in the water, they're disconnected from the ground. 
He goes on and on about this. So it's this notion the more connected to the earth, because again, uh, kashrus is the way to elevate ourselves for spirituality, even within this physical world. So we saw a lot of the ideas of kashrus. Please buy kosher food from Israel. Shop Israel Day, March 30th. Sunday, March 30th.